What are the top information security concerns as we head into 2010? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Marcus Ranham, Chief Security Officer of Tenable Security. Marcus, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Marcus, you're well-known. People have, uh, have known you and known your work for decades now, literally. Tell us a bit about what you're doing these days, please, with Tenable. Well, as the CSO, um, I guess I'm, my main job is really to evangelize the company and our products and to get word out there. But I'm, I'm very fortunate because the position that I've got allows me a great deal of leeway to pretty much say what I think and to think about whatever I'm interested in. So I, I kind of, well, I do a lot of, I do a lot of work with media and I do a lot of writing and, and blogging on security topics. Give us a sense of what are the biggest things on your mind right now as far as information security concerns as we head into the new year. Well, there, there, are, there are two problems that have been on my mind since the 1980s, the late, the late 1980s, and those are just that distributed data, putting, putting your data all over your, your network and your enterprise in order to make it more convenient for access represents vulnerability everywhere and you know some of the old school security practitioners have been saying this for a very long time you know you, you get this stuff in everybody's hands and it's going to leak from everybody's hands because not everybody is on the on the same chart as far as worrying about keeping data from uh, from being exposed and then the endpoint security issue is is another one i mean i, I think it's you know, it's it's flat out pathetic that it's 2009 and we're still running operating systems that are susceptible to malware, um, you know, and, and Trojan horses and viruses and, and stuff like that. You know, it's 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 really sad. I mean, every pretty much every Intel processor has got the trusted uh, the, the the TPM, the trusted programming module in it. Um, you know, why operating systems aren't taking keeping track of this stuff. Well, <clears throat> the reason is convenience. And, you know, I, I think sooner or later uh, the industry is going to have to wake up that, that we're, we're really getting the whole game away just so that people, you know, don't have to click it and click OK or think a few seconds before they install a new device driver or something like that. What do you find to be the biggest threats that get the least attention? Um Again, you know, I would come. I would come back to the to the whole the whole malware issue. People people sit there and they kind of go, well, you know, we really haven't had a big problem with it. It's it's only a home user problem. You know what? <laughs> um, somebody's got remote control over your system and you you don't care. You know, the typical home user. When I talk to, to the typical home user and I say, you know, do you know you shouldn't be worried about this stuff, they kind of go, well, you know, it's okay. You know, it doesn't slow my internet connection down too much. Wow. And I really think that's where the problem is. You know, and, and again, businesses have got their heads in the sand because they say, well, you know, that's a typical home user problem. That's not a business issue. But it, it is a business issue. That home user is going to stick a USB thumb drive in something and he's going to bring it in, you know, he's going to bring malware into the office with him. Or he's going to access the corporate assets from from home on a VPN using a machine that is completely owned by every hacker on the planet. You know, transitive trust is the name of the game, and transitive trust has always been the hardest problem in computer security. Um, and unfortunately, because it's a very difficult problem, you know, a lot of people have their head in the sand about it. 
Well, I'd ask you what it takes to wake people up, but if a TJX or a Heartland doesn't wake up people in organizations, what will? I don't think anything will at this point. I mean, I've been doing this long enough, and the security the security community has always said, oh, this is a wake-up call, and this is a wake-up call. We've had 20 years of wake-up calls. You know, I think at this point, it's pretty safe to, to just assume that people just aren't going to get it. I, I really am completely baffled. Yeah, what is it going to take? Is it going to take somebody crashing the entire power grid for a month? Maybe. Maybe that would get people's attention. You know, I don't I don't know. Safe to say that the wake-up calls instead are snooze alarms? Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 really bizarre. Human, human nature is, is fascinating, and, and our ability to absorb punishment is, is really amazing. If you want to think about it from a different perspective... Just ask yourself, how many life years of human life have been wasted dealing with problems resulting from just viruses and, you know, and, and robotic worms? Thousands and thousands and thousands of man hours have gone down the toilet um, in, in IT departments and in home users trying to deal with these problems. And, you know, stacked up against that is this kind of lure of convenience on, on the flip side. Um, you know, frankly, if, if the fact that we've been wasting our time dealing with these issues for, for 20 years isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is. Marcus, let me ask you about a few specific areas that, that you've talked about elsewhere. Cloud computing, for one. Everyone's talking about it like it's the newest thing that, that's come to planet Earth, but certainly we've talked about variations of this for years. What are the greatest risks of this this new great thing that people have discovered? Well, that's a really great question. I mean, you know, one of the things that's funny is people get all upset about cloud computing, and, and then I like to point out that most banks, that, that you know, medium to small size banks, have, have relationships with um, firms like Viserv that are essentially a remote mainframe that's at some place and is, is out in the cloud. You know, and it's on a private network link, but but that's cloud computing, and this has been going on for. A very, very long time. All the airlines use the cloud computing service we call Saber, and they've been using it since the 1970s. So I don't think that some aspects of, of cloud computing are new. But um, the, the, the thing that's going to happen with any new technology that comes along is you get new problems that people just haven't, haven't thought of yet. It gives, it gives the bad guys an opportunity to invent new ways to, 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 to mess with the system. Um, you know, I was I was at a session a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about cloud computing, and somebody said, "Well, you know, it's okay to put your data out there as long as you encrypt it," which is, you know, it's a reasonable first order response. And then, you know, I raised my hand and I said, "Well, you know, you realize that it's not just that somebody could decrypt your data, you know, could could you know access your data. That's the problem. What if somebody just deletes all your data? It's out in the cloud. Someone breaks into the cloud, and someone tells the cloud now delete my data. Whoops." There's different exposures. There's new, new kinds of problems that are different. But the, the interesting thing is that the, the problems just, they kind of move around, you know? You, 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 if you're worried about someone deleting your data, I suppose you should ask whether your administrator is trustworthy. What if your system administrator goes crazy and decides to delete your data? So all that cloud computing does is lets you kind of move some of your problems into different places than where they are now. 
and you pay more or less money for doing that. If you move, if you outsource stuff, you've moved your entire problem into somebody else's hands, and you've got to worry about negotiating service level agreements and all that kind of thing, which is exactly the same problem that still doesn't go away. Where if you do it inside in house, you have to actually do the work, but you don't have to negotiate a service level agreement with yourself. So what I find with this stuff is that the the difficulty kind of squishes around, but it doesn't either go away or get too much worse. Um, the main place for cloud computing is, is certainly an incredibly exciting potential is for someone who's doing, who's doing something completely new, right? Because you don't have any legacy code. You don't have to worry about bringing your old business practice forward into the cloud. You can look at the cloud and go, well, how can I leverage this? Leverage the hell out of it and be up and running right away. Um, I think a lot of organizations that are looking at these kind of cloud success stories don't quite understand that they're not going to be able to take their legacy application and just move it into a cloud without essentially recoding the whole thing. And in that sort of situation, I try to encourage people to, to think of cloud computing as an opportunity to do business process reengineering. Another topic for you, Mark, is cyber warfare. This got a lot of people's concern this year, especially around the 4th of July when they thought that the, the foreign entities were starting to, to hack into government, U.S. government. How do you separate myth from reality here? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's all myth. Um, you know, what, what, what happens is that, well, first off, it really annoys me that people call something cyber or whatever just because it's touched a microprocessor. I mean, you know, every single thing in the world that we're doing right now touches microprocessors, but I don't go around talking about my cyber toaster and my cyber coffee machine, um, which, you know, I, I think I think that what, when people talk about cyber or whatever, they're, they're basically saying, I want this to be treated as a separate budget line item so that I can, I can do some empire building in my bureaucracy. Um, but there's there's multiple problems here. There's cyber crime. There's cyber espionage, which is just espionage, except uh, it's touched microprocessors. You know, there's the, this cyber war concept, um, and, uh, and and there's also the potential for cyber terrorism. Those things are all completely different. The notion of cyber terrorism is a real threat. I think that there is a potential that disgruntled individuals can go around unilaterally doing damage. And we saw that, that that the incident in Estonia last year was a single disgruntled individual who basically decided he was going to take on a government and for a while he was winning. Um, that's not cyber war. That is a single individual who's taking an action. The problem with the notion of cyber war is you have to look at state versus state activity, and then you've got to ask yourself whether that makes any sense. You know, the U.S. and Russia are not going to get into a cyber war. We would get into a real war if we got into a war at all, but we're not going to, we're not going to crash each other's networks. And the reason for that is, first off, it interferes with your espionage ability. Right? When you take down your, your targets' networks, you've just blinded your, you've blinded your spies, um, and it's bad for business. Um, so I think that the whole the whole thing about the cyber war is just being you know ridiculously oversold. I saw an article a couple of weeks ago about a counterinsurgency operation in Iraq that was built as a big cyber war success story, and you know you read about it and it's kind of well they they were listening in on uh, they were listening in on the insurgents' communications using radio uh, intelligence techniques 
and they did some penetrations against some computers based on that, and they were able to have some soldiers in the correct place to foil an attack. Honestly, uh, what about that is cyber war? Uh, that sounds like battlefield intelligence being executed effectively. So, so the whole thing, I think, is, is, is largely mythological. But since we spent so much money on it, the people who, who encouraged us to spend money on it are basically they're just trying to get the government to double down, I guess. Marcus, another area where people spend a lot of money, businesses do. Penetration testing. When is that simply a waste of their time and resources? Well, I think pen testing is almost always a waste of time. What you really, you know, the, the computer, computer security practitioners have not done a very good job of reading the literature on testing methodologies in engineering. If you're going to test something, if you're going to call something a test, you actually have to have a result in that test that could be meaningful. Right? You're going to test the steel I-beam against so many pounds per square inch of pressure or something like that. A penetration test doesn't tell you that you're secure. A penetration test either tells you your network sucks or your pen testers couldn't get into it. it. None of the results that you get back from a pen test are your network is secure. Right? But the problem is that's why people want to do a pen test. They want to convince themselves that their network is secure. Well, if you want to convince yourself that your network is secure, what you really need to do is do a, a bottom-up design methodology and then test your components individually to see if your components are working and if your overall design leads to security as a result of how you've deployed your components, then I think you can actually say something useful. But you know, unfortunately, in a lot of the cases where I see pen tests being done, it really shows you that you're either dealing with dysfunctional organizational politics or bad management, which really are the same thing, right? You know, one business unit decides that they're going to do something, and the security team decides to do a pen test just so that they can try to shelve a project that they think is a bad idea or something like that. And then the other one that happens fairly often is just people will say, well, we're not going to do anything about security unless you can show us that there's a problem. And so then money is spent to do a pen test just to show somebody that they should have listened to one of their coworkers, which, if you think about that, is, is just shockingly unprofessional. Um, so, unfortunately, when I see organizations that are doing pen tests, I usually think, well, you know, either they've been snookered under this PCI label and they, they're required to do a pen test, which, <clears throat> you know, it shouldn't surprise you that that's part of the PCI standard because it was written by pen testers. Um, it usually just shows me that it's an organization that's, that's, that's dysfunctional or badly managed. One last question for you, Marcus. I want to take you in a, a different direction entirely. We've got a, a you know a, a information security profession that really has matured a lot over the last five or six years. And for someone that's looking to start a career there today or restart one if they want to move from another discipline, where should one begin? Well, you know, I, I honestly think computer security, except for niche practitioners who have specific specialties, like, you know, a digital forensic analysis guy or something like that, I think computer security is going to wind up melting back into the landscape as a result of all of the audit that's going on. Um, so, unfortunately, you know, the, the practical answer in the short term would be if you want to get in the security field, you know, be a lawyer. Um, there's going to be a tremendous amount of work in the legal profession surrounding computer security um, in the not-too-distant future. And unfortunately, 
um, you know, auditing is the other alternative, although, I, you know, I, I would rather hammer nails into my head than be an auditor. Um, I just talk about unpleasant work. Um, you know, so uh, I, my, my suggestion, honestly, would be to, to kind of avoid computer security unless you want to do bookkeeping, because I think that, unfortunately, as a side effect of all of the new standards and audits that are coming in, um, computer security is not going to be able to innovate anymore. I think the days when somebody could, you know, get up on a Friday and build a firewall and have it working by Monday, those are gone because now the auditors are going to come and go, no, no, you have to buy an approved product, right? So the 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 ability for individual contributors to innovate and do interesting things in security is going to is going to continue to erode. Um, in the next five to ten years to the point where I think security is really not going to be very interesting anymore. Well, Marcus, I appreciate your time and your insight today. Thank you so much. Well, it's been fun. Thank you. Been talking with Marcus Ranham, Chief Security Officer with Tenable Security. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much. <laughs>